Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. And I think it's an amazing apologetic for the truth uh, of Scripture, that you have over 1,500 years, over 40 different authors, different time periods, different settings, and you have one story which builds. It's, uh, it really is remarkable. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, Biblical Studies professor Jeff Brannon traces the theology of resurrection to help us understand what Scripture teaches us about God's awesome plan of redemption. He's a Reformed Christian. That means a Calvinist theologian, and like so many of our Protestant brothers and sisters, a real sola scriptura kind of guy, who brings a dazzling facility with citation, chapter and verse, that's quite impressive and helpful in tackling this great mystery through a truly unified look at the Bible, something many of us Catholics, almost good ones especially, can learn from. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics. I'm your host, Chris Odinitz, and I get to ask interesting people who have thought about the big questions to share their conclusions, to explain what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this format in dialogue, in back and forth, may help us approach the truth and have a really good time doing it. And should you want to join the conversation, I invite you to please email me at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. Jeff Brannon is Professor of Biblical Studies and Chair of the Biblical Studies and Ministries Department at Belhaven University, a Christian liberal arts college in Jackson, Mississippi. We are going to talk today about his new book, The Hope of Life After Death, A Biblical Theology of Resurrection. Welcome, Professor Brannon. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here with you. Uh, the pleasure is mine. Uh, do you have a joke you'd like to share with us? Yeah, I've got I've got two actually. Right. So I'm going to give you my my favorite dad joke, and then uh, I'll, I'll introduce the next one after this. So my favorite dad joke is this: uh, My boss told me to have a good day, so I went home. <laughs> so yeah, I love I love that one. That's very nice because you could tell your kids like your, my principal said, "Have a nice day." So yeah, I went, yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And then when I was telling my kids uh, that I had to have a joke to, to start off this podcast, uh, they did a little bit of researching and searching on the internet and so forth. And I like this one. Um, what do you call it when Batman leaves church early? <laughs> Christian uh, Bale. <laughs> Very nice. Those yeah. are my two jokes for today. That's terrific. Um, bravo. The topic of, of um, your book is supremely interesting to all Christians today. Uh, Roman Catholics, as well as our Protestant brothers and sisters. And am I correct in understanding that you are part of the Reformed Church, that is, a Calvinist? And if yes, could you tell us about your denomination? And if no, could you correct me about that? Yeah, so I am uh, part of a Reformed background, Reformed Church, Calvinist tradition. Uh, But I'll give you a little bit of a funny story as well, and then just tell you a little bit about my church, uh, present tradition and denomination and so forth. My Mm -hmm. background um, is actually pretty varied. I grew up when I was very young going to a non-denominational semi-charismatic church. And then um, starting in about in middle school, went to a, a Baptist church in, in Nashville, Tennessee. It was very formative uh, in my life and so forth. And 
Um, the first time I was ever exposed to Reformed theology, I was with a group of friends, and we were with a, uh, with a Young Life leader, and uh, he started to speak to us about some different Reformed doctrines and so forth. And when he, the first time he ever said uh, this sort of thing, it, it was like the craziest, most ludicrous thing I think I'd ever heard in my life. I mean, he might as well have been saying that, that God was this chair over here or something like that. It was, it was completely not on my radar. So, so yes, I am Reformed. Uh, I am a Calvinist, um, but uh, I didn't grow up in that tradition. And so it was somewhat unexpected, um, I guess, uh, my journey there. But I'm a part of the Presbyterian Church uh, in America um, that's uh, referred to as the PCA. Uh, we're involved in a local church, Highland Presbyterian Church here in the Jackson, Mississippi area. And um, I'm not ordained, but I'm very involved in the life of the church and serving in different ways and teaching and so forth. So yeah, that's uh, a little bit of my present background and my uh, background when I was growing up. So what sort of things did that young life leader say that knocked your socks off? Was it talking about predestination or something like that? Yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah, we that topic came up and it was just like the craziest thing I think I'd ever heard in my life. And so, but it got me exposed to this a little bit. I began just um, a process of kind of thinking about it, praying about it and and reading through the scriptures and so forth. And, um, and then over a, a period of a few years, um, my theology started uh, changing and shifting a little bit. Yeah. So is that something you feel like explaining in, you know, um, a couple of minutes or is that uh, impossible? Yeah, no, I, I'm happy to do that. Yeah, so, give it a shot. Yeah, so um, essentially I was reading in uh, in John 6, and there are a couple of verses um, in there where Jesus says this, that no one can come uh, to the Father or come to me unless, uh, unless the Father draws him. And so it was one of these kind of just moments where I realized, um, at least in my own journey and so forth, what I believe Scripture was teaching is that God must have the initiative. God must be the one who works in people's hearts. God must be the one that changes hearts. And God must be the one who draws people to himself. And so that, I think, was my senior year in high school. Uh, that was quite a formative uh, moment for me. And it began just to kind of um, shift a little bit in the way, I thought about, the way I thought about God, the way I thought about salvation. And then as I continued to read Scripture, I started to see... Um, these things just in more places. And I realized, especially in a podcast like this, we're going to have people from all kinds of different backgrounds mm -hmm. and traditions and different views on these sorts of things. It's just a little bit uh, of my journey. And then when I went to college, I got involved again with um, a Presbyterian church, PCA and so forth. And, um, and these sorts of things began to be solidified a little bit more. Yeah, no, that's, that's really well put. And, and, um, and quickly too. One thing I've heard recently um, I think it's maybe from Bishop Barron, or, or I could be mistaken, that many people since the beginning of time have, have searched for God through the various world religions. But Christians are uh, alone in the fact that in, in this approach, God is searching for us and God is chasing after us. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And I think that's kind of what we see, you know, um, after the fall um, is that we need to, God takes the initiative. God is the one who seeks out and searches out his people. God is the one who makes his people alive. And those sorts of things kind of became formative and, and primary in my thinking as I thought about salvation. Yeah. Um, so my, I, I wrote um, that to you earlier that my paternal grandmother was a Calvinist in Poland. And, okay. and she, she died about 20 years ago, maybe a little less, maybe 15. But um, she, she was a remarkable woman. And that was a rare, very rare thing. Uh, Poland... 
before the 18th century had very many religions. You know, there were Calvinists and Lutherans and, of, of course, Catholics, and there were many Jews and there were, you know, pagans in the forests of Lithuania and, and all kinds of, you know, Eastern, uh, Eastern Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. However, in the second half of the 20th century, after everything turned into nation states, after the Second World War, after the destruction of the Jews uh, in Central Europe, and after the um, expulsion of Germans after the war, you know, across the borders, it became this really small, ethnically Polish, 99% Catholic kind of place. But she she kept she kept um, her her Calvinist faith, and she had her own church, and she was the only one among you know my my dad's family who who did this. But she. Was, okay. a, was a happy, you know, happy, um, de- devoted Calvinist uh, her whole life. Okay. Um, so it's a pleasure to talk to you. I hope to learn learn um, from you. Uh, so here's my question. Um, before the resurrection, could we, t- uh, could we talk about salvation and redemption? Because yep. um, your book is about the resurrection, but I think we should back up and say, why did God need to send his only begotten son, the word through which all things were made, to come and save us? Why such an elaborate process? Why not simply wave his all-powerful hand and excuse the offense of Adam and Eve and every single rotten thing we do um, and all the humans and just be done with it? Why this, uh, this elaborate suffering, sacrifice, death and resurrection? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, you know, on the one hand, we kind of have to be silent uh, where Scripture uh, is silent. And we can't, um, in, in some ways, we can't say too much about this. But I think Scripture does say some really, really important things and speaks to this in some ways. And I think that allows us to, to at least approach some important answers to this. So uh, first, I would say this, that in Genesis two fifteen through 17, um, what you find is sometimes Reformed theologians will refer to this as, as the covenant of works and so forth. And what you have is that life um, implicitly is promised for obedience. So um, uh, held out for Adam and Eve and their descendants and so forth, there is life that's promised for obedience. And then there is death that is promised for disobedience. And so we read there that the day you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will surely die. Um, uh, certainly somewhat of a comment on this verse we see in the New Testament, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. And so I think when we think about this, and one thing I think that's really important, I think it's an encouragement for us um, as, well as, as well as a caution for us, but God is always faithful to his word. He's always faithful to his promises and so when God says this, that the wages of sin is death, the day you eat the fruit of this tree, uh, you will die, um, that he means that. And so this is the, the penalty of sin. This is the penalty. Uh, death is the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death. And so I think we see that. And then soon after the fall, you have God giving this promise, what I refer to, or many people refer to rather, as the first promise of redemption or the first preaching of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, that one day there's going to be um, uh, this offspring of the woman that's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. And I think this is um, ultimately fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in his first coming, and then in his second coming uh, when he returns in glory and power as well. And so when you start to put the pieces of the puzzle together, like in in Genesis 3, that God um, uh, takes an animal to clothe Adam and Eve, Um, God provides an animal. Um, Instead of taking Isaac's life, God gives 
uh, takes the Passover lamb instead of taking the firstborn of Israel. Um, you have the uh, sacrificial system instituted in Leviticus. Um, you've got this promise of a suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and 53. All of these point to the fact that because of our sin, that we need a, a sacrifice, we need a substitute. And um, this, of course, is fulfilled in the death of Jesus. And in Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. One of the things that I talk about in the book is that Jesus gives his life for our life. Jesus gives his life so that his people uh, can have life. And so I think that's one thing we see because of God is always faithful to his word and what he said. Why such a long process? Well, again, we have to be silent where Scripture is silent. Could God have done this a different way? Um, perhaps the only thing I would say is this. When you look at um, even before the fall, what God gives uh, the commission for Adam and Eve and humanity in Genesis 1:28 to be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. That commission was going to be a long process. And what God wants is he wants lots of his images and he wants them throughout the entire earth. And then so what we find is that um, God is bringing redemption through his son, through the Lord Jesus, but that commission is still taking place. And now we see that taking place through the great commission. So what does God want? He wants the whole earth to be his and he wants uh, his people, his redeemed image to be throughout the entire earth. So um, even after the fall, this process um, of being fruitful, multiply, filling the earth uh, and subduing it is still given to Christians. And that at least gives us perhaps a glimpse um, for why this is such a long process. I guess on the one hand, it didn't have to be, um, but uh, on the other hand, we're continuing to fulfill this original commission that God gave his people in Genesis 1.28. So um, I'll, I'll summarize and, and then you, you, you respond. And first I'll read this little passage uh, from, from your book on page 103 and 104. You write, we should reflect on the cost of our salvation. Nothing less than the sacrificial death of Jesus could accomplish salvation and bring new life in Christ. Without Jesus as the suffering servant, we could not be reconciled to God, could not have access to God's presence, and could not be a part of God's kingdom, and could not inherit eternal life, both new spiritual life in the present and bodily resurrection uh, life in the future. And so what I'm hearing you say is, one, the sacrifice itself is necessary, and maybe that means sacrifice because without without losing something dear, it, it's, it's like you're getting off too easy. It has to hurt. It has, to, it has to mark the value of something. The way our, our very ancient ancestors, if they were going to make peace and, um, and have a treaty or make some kind of agreement, they'd kill something very valuable like, you know, like an ox or something. Or if you had a, had a new child, like when baby Jesus went to the temple on the eighth day, they had to bring two turtle doves, that sort of thing. Like it shows how, how, valuable, how valuable this is. Or like when you have a feast, you know, you feed everybody in the village. And the second thing I'm hearing you say is it takes time because God wants this gospel spread between people. He wants for the Great Commission to happen, for you know, the, the, the Christians to get to every corner of the planet is going to take centuries and centuries. And God's desire is for people to convert each other through the Holy Spirit rather than you know, God come in a glorious flash of light and say, uh, time's up, here's the answer. Yeah, th those, are, those are great questions. Yeah, I think 
Um, I think you're right. And what I would really press uh, in that first one um, is, is this, uh, and this is um, something I believe that scripture teaches um, that Romans 3.25, Jesus' um, death is a sacrifice of atonement. So what I believe is he takes the punishment that was due to Adam and Eve and all humanity, um, descended from them. For everyone who trusts in Christ as Lord and Savior, he takes that punishment uh, upon himself. And so, uh, so yeah, like what you're saying, without Jesus as the fulfillment of this suffering servant, the one who suffers, the one who dies on our behalf, there is no salvation. And then, yeah, one of the amazing things is that God chooses to use um, people, his image, to bring about uh, this plan of redemption, to bring about this redemption going to the ends of the earth. And again, we see it in Genesis one twenty eight. We see it when Jesus gives uh, the Great Commission. We see in Psalm 8 when David reflects on humanity's role and so forth to reign and rule over creation. It really is uh, it really is pretty amazing, but God is going to use um, his image. He's going to use his people to bring about his kingdom and to bring about his kingdom purposes. Okay. Um, thank you for that. My, my second question is moving from the, um, the, the, the death, the sacrifice to the, to the resurrection is a, a very interesting point that you made that was not obvious to me. And that you say that for many American Christians, there is little question about the crucifixion, um, as you say, the atonement for our sins, right? But not enough emphasis on the resurrection. Could you talk a bit about that? And I'll just say that for Catholics, or at least it seems that way to me, those always go together. We always say Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again in a very automatic. We say that every single mm -hmm. Sunday. We, we, take that, we take that for granted. Um, and one thing I've noticed between Protestant churches and um, the Catholic church is that we tend to have Jesus on the cross and our Protestant brothers and sisters tend to have the empty cross. And um Maybe that's for simplicity because, you know, Catholics are kind of ornamental and ornate and given to, to statues. But maybe that's to emphasize the risen Christ instead of the, 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 the suffering servant. Right. Good. That's, uh, those are great points. And this is a great question. And I think um, you're correct in saying that both Catholics and Protestants emphasize uh, the importance of Christ's death and resurrection even in that formula which you gave. So both are, are really important. My point is this, is that most Christians, I would say, in our culture have a very good understanding. If we said, why did Christ um, die on the cross for sin? How Jesus' death on the cross is connected to salvation. Again, they'd point to something like what I said earlier, Romans 3.25, Jesus' death is a sacrifice of atonement. Um, there's forgiveness in his blood. Jesus died to take the punishment um, of, of uh, sin and death on his people. Where, where I think um, many Christians um, kind of miss out is they understand that the resurrection is important. And what some people have noted um, is 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 this is that the resurrection is often relegated to something like an apologetic importance so jesus is raised from the dead so you should listen to him jesus is raised from the dead so you should believe in him jesus is raised from the dead this means christianity is true that sort of thing but they don't have um, as much of an understanding of how Jesus' resurrection is connected to, is linked with God's plan of redemption, and is linked with salvation. 
So this is one of the concerns, one of the things that got me thinking many years ago as I began just to kind of think about um, why is the resurrection of Jesus important for our salvation? And uh, what we see in Scripture, I think, is this. And again, this is just, I think, in God's good plan and his plan of redemption is he has tied salvation to an individual. So if you look at something like Romans 5, 12 through 21, um, you see uh, this idea that Adam in his sin brings condemnation, brings judgment, and brings death for humanity. Jesus comes as the second Adam, and in his righteousness, he brings justification and he brings life. And so without Jesus's resurrection from the dead, um, when I, I think when you kind of start to put the pieces of the puzzle together, we would say that sin and death have not been conquered by Jesus. Rather, sin and death have conquered Jesus. And um, what that would mean is that those who believe in Jesus are united to uh, a Savior, which is really not a Savior because he has been conquered by sin and death. And this is the reason I think Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 17 that without the resurrection of Jesus, you are still in your sins. Mm -hmm. So not only is Jesus's death on the cross important, essential, and indispensable for salvation, so also is his resurrection from the dead. In his resurrection, he has conquered sin, he has conquered death, and this means that those who trust in Jesus, in this second Adam, that he has brought righteousness, he has brought justification, and he has brought resurrection life for those who trust in him because he has conquered sin and death. That is that's so interesting and so mysterious. Um, and I'll add a point that an, an earlier guest of mine, the Dominican theologian, Matthew Thomas, said is that it's not just the death on the cross, but the whole process of incarnation, being mm -hmm. born, living among us for 33 years, Yes, dying on that, you know, one very bad event, but then immediately rise. Like that whole process um, is, is, has a salvific power to it. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I think we look at, um, when you look at what the New Testament, how it talks about these things is that Jesus's life, his perfect life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead are all indispensable. They're all essential for our salvation. And there's no salvation um, without uh, without all of those things, yeah. Um, okay, so let's uh, let's talk about the argument that you lay out in your book. Um, I understand that that you are taking a unified look at the Bible as a whole, and as your friend and editor uh, Benjamin Glad explains mm -hmm. in the preface, that's the purpose of the essential studies of biblical theology. Um, how do you how do you uh, what, what's the big argument and how does it, how do you use scripture from the very beginning from Genesis one and Genesis two, especially in Genesis three, all the way to the end? Great. And maybe first I'll just comment briefly mm -hmm. on uh, this biblical theological focus. And as you mentioned, this unified look at the Bible, and then I'll uh, tran transition to my specific argument. But in biblical theology, as you mentioned, you're kind of looking at the Bible as one story. Um, as one purpose, as one plan of redemption. And there are different themes and so forth that you can uh, trace in biblical theology. But usually what people doing, are doing is they're looking at creation, Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, they're looking at the fall, Genesis 3, and then God's plan of redemption, which unfolds from Genesis 3.15 all the way to Revelation 22. 
And one of the things that I just, but this is really just an aside here, but, but I wanted to comment on it. One of the things that I think is really incredible is uh, when you think about the Bible, you've got over 40 uh, different authors, and it's written over a period of about 1,500 years. Mm-hmm. And you have this remarkable coherence, this one story that's building from uh, with each author in over 1,500 years. And in, in my view, this is not possible merely from a human perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you'd have different authors taking things and commenting things and saying things um, all kinds of different ways. But this is what biblical theology is doing, is it's kind of looking at the Bible through this one story, through God's plan of redemption. And I think it's an amazing apologetic for the truth uh, of Scripture, that you have over 1,500 years, over 40 different authors, different time periods, different settings, and you have one story which builds. It's, uh, it really is remarkable. So, um, well, uh, and, and so then we do you also do you believe also that you know this is the, the work of the Holy Spirit through human hands? Definitely, uh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah and, that's right. Um, uh, I think you see there in the Second Peter one passage that prophets spoke and so forth as they're carried along uh, by the Holy Spirit. Second Timothy three sixteen through seventeen, all Scripture being God breathed, not just. Um, uh, inspired by God and like giving someone some sort of inspiration, but breathed out uh, by God and breath being uh, even a reference to the spirit and so forth. So yes, uh, definitely. So I think this is one of the remarkable things about biblical theology is this unity that you find uh, in the Bible that you find in, in scripture. But to kind of move just a little bit more to my specific argument. And, and can uh, I, uh, be, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I just want to add that uh, one thing I think Protestants do really well is spend a lot of time in the word. And sometimes I think Catholics, um, it would be nice if we all did that. Um, well, because I think you can t- put it to the test yourself when you open the book in the morning and you're dealing with the things in your life and that day's passage or the thing you were yeah. drawn to speaking, not only about something that happened 2000 or 3000 years ago, but speaking exactly about what you needed to hear that day. Um, and, yeah. and I think that, does a work of um, conversion in a small and daily way for us all. And you're like, wow, this is, is really something happening here. And nobody can tell you that. You have to test it for yourself. And I think Protestants... Yeah, that's right. There's this great example of the Bereans where they looked at the scriptures to, to see if what Paul was telling them was true. And I really appreciate what you said about the power of scripture and so forth, you know, highlighted in Hebrews 4.12, where the author writes... Uh, that the word of God is living and active. Mm-hmm. It is, is something which um, is living, it's active, and, and changes um, people. So, to appreciate that comment there. Okay, so go ahead. Um, tell us, tell us about your argument in your book. Yeah. So essentially, what I'm doing is is taking this unified look at the Bible, and what I'm uh, doing is is trying to demonstrate that resurrection is an essential piece, the essential part of God's plan of redemption, and. You know, I mentioned that in biblical theology, you're usually kind of tracing the categories of creation, fall, and redemption. And when you look at creation, the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2, one of the things that's, you know, it's it's really kind of obvious, but perhaps um, it's so obvious that we don't reflect on it the way we need to. But God creates people for life. He creates people for uh, a life in relationship with him. He creates humanity for life in his presence, and he gives a wonderful purpose and privilege of reigning over 
uh, creation. And he even holds out, kind of as I mentioned before, um, this hope, this promise of eternal life, uh, which we see uh, with the tree of life. So God creates humanity for life, but then, as we mentioned, he gives uh, this test of obedience um, to humanity, to Adam. And in Genesis uh, 2, 15 through 17, he says that when you eat the fruit of this tree, you will die. With the fall, then, when Adam disobe- disobeys, you have um, death entering into the picture. And um, then in redemption, God gives a first promise of redemption, the first promise of good news in Genesis 15. We could say this, that it is God's unfolding plan of redemption. It's his unfolding plan of resurrection. And with even with this first promise in Genesis 3.15, what I would say, it's a promise that death will be conquered mm-hmm. and that there will be resurrection life for his people. Now, it's not explicit. I'm not, I'm not saying anything that is explicit or anything like that, but I think it's implicit uh, there when God gives this first promise of redemption. When you walk through the Old Testament, you have promises, you have prophecies of life and resurrection, you have all kinds of different pictures. That's one of the things I'll talk about. Um, uh, The sacrifice of Isaac and then him not being sacrificed and having another, Mm -hmm. uh, having a substitute and Abraham believing God's promises so much that he even believed God could raise Isaac from the dead. That's a picture. Um, Entering into the land of promise is a picture of life and so forth. And then when you get to the New Testament, we find um, God's plan of redemption and these promises of resurrection un- unfolding in some surprising ways in the sense, again, is that they don't come all at once. You first have the resurrection of Jesus, and then when people trust in Jesus, you have the spiritual resurrection of his people, the spiritual resurrection of believers. And then when Jesus returns, you have the future bodily resurrection of believers. So kind of just tracing um, this theme from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22, how God's uh, plan of resurrection unfolds in Scripture. Yeah, and um, it's very different in all the... As you lay out chronologically in your book, it's it, it, it plays out differently in each phase of our history, just as like we, we might not be ready for the next lesson when we're taking the first lesson, just right. as you wouldn't teach you know a, a, a child the thing you would teach a teenager or the thing you would teach right. an adult. Um, so God takes his time and he must have known, ex- I mean, of course he knew because <laughs> he's God, exactly what's going to happen as soon as he said, here's this tree. But because he's all knowing and all loving, he already had a plan for sorting sorting that yeah, out. Yeah, I think I really appreciate what you said there. That's one of the things that you see in biblical theology is you see how this plan kind of unfolds and you have it in seed form at the beginning and then it kind of grows and so forth. And biblical theology, you're looking to see how this unfolds and grows as God's uh, plan of redemption uh, comes about. Yeah. Okay. So we have Genesis and we have the fall. And then you talk about um, Old Testament precedents, you know, uh, for, not foreshadowing, but precedents of, of resurrection with the covenant, with the temple, the first temple, the second temple and the promised land. What, what is the, what do you think? Yeah, those are some of the the precedents that I do talk about. Um, I think I may tweak this just a little bit. And the themes that I'm kind of um, following or tracing, um, starting in Genesis 1 and 2, are this in the book. So number one, one of the things I highlight 
Um, again, God creates us for life. Mm-hmm. And um, the basis for life, what I'm arguing, is a right relationship with God. And you mentioned covenant as one of these precedents. And this is what I would say is that God relates to his people through covenants. And so what you find um, when you walk through scripture is this, is that those who are in a right relationship with God, um, there is life associated with that. Now, sometimes it's just going to be, you know, that life is associated with God is protecting and watching over his people and so forth. But then there are going to be these glimpses of resurrection that we find as well. Like, for example, um, in the Genesis 5 genealogy, this person died, this person died, this person died, and so forth. And you have Enoch walked with God, and then God took him. Yeah, okay? that's a mysterious, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's just a mysterious preview um, of this, that death will not have the final word, doesn't have the final the final say. And again, it's connected to this idea that the basis for life is a right relationship uh, with God. Um, another theme that I talk about is the locus of life or um, and that is God's presence that life is found in God's presence and again we can uh, this kind of corresponds with what you mentioned of the temple and and the promised land and so forth uh, one of the things that I think is is striking is you when you kind of look at the language of Genesis 2 and so forth is that Eden is like a temple garden hmm. it's to be a place uh, it's to be a place of life it's to be a temple. And then you see these things unfolding when Adam and Eve are exiled, when they are cast out of Eden. God then takes a corporate people for himself, the nation of Israel, and brings Mm -hmm. them into a land. And the idea is this, is that God is bringing them kind of back to a place of life and abundance and so forth. And then when you get to the New Testament, you have Jesus coming saying that he is greater than the temple. Mm -hmm. And you have... um, uh, Jesus saying things like this, that life is connected with him. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then the other theme that I uh, kind of trace in this is this idea of purpose in life being to reign with God, to reign as God's vice regents, to reign over creation. And this is another thing that, that you find all throughout the scriptures is that reigning with God is connected Um, with life and resurrection and so forth. You know, one of the really clear ways that we see this is the New Testament authors, if you look at kind of like Acts 2 and Acts 13, Romans 1, 3 through 4 and so forth, um, one of the things they will emphasize is kind of Jesus' installation, his formal enthronement um, to his kingship happens with his resurrection, ascension, exaltation and so forth. And I think we see the same thing Uh, When we look at those who are united to Christ, one of the reasons we don't presently reign believers as uh, we will in the future is because sin um, is still active and so forth. I believe that Christians will continue to struggle with sin uh, throughout their life. And of course, this whole notion of death, that death still reigns over us. But of course, for the Christian Um, For the believer, death is not final. It's not ultimate. And then when Jesus returns, uh, Christians will be bodily raised and they will reign over creation as God intended. So those are kind of the precedents that I'm kind of talking about of a right relationship with God, of life in God's presence and reigning as God's vice regents. And these are all connected with these themes of life and resurrection throughout Scripture. Okay, so... 
two themes that I hear from you. Um, one is, again, the, the simultaneous authority of Scripture in the past, the, dis- the distant past, you know, the, you know like the, the, the ancient tribe of Israel, plus Jesus's time on earth with me right now and possibly the future. So as you say, like the, the, the Israel crosses out of slavery across a desert through the Red, through the Red Sea across a desert to the promised land. Likewise, yeah. you know, it was required that Jesus flee to um, Egypt from Herod and then yeah. comes back to the promised land. He passes through the water in baptism and so on. That's right. right. I can read those two stories. And at the same time, I might be crossing some kind of desert in my own life. I could be struggling with a sin. I could have some kind of suffering that has been visited upon me by somebody else. Like there's something in my life where I also, you know, escape from a slavery, cross a desert, go through with like, and I experience new life. All of that is happening um, at the same time in a mysterious, mysterious way, um, which would be impossible for a human author, but with an omnipotent, all-knowing, all-loving God who can write it in scripture through our hands and also in history through our actions um that's possible do you um so the first question is like have i got that right and also do you think that all these very distant stories for example in the book of genesis do you think they are taken as um uh does it matter were, were they absolutely literary literarily true or can we take it as a story and a myth and um uh, does that, I mean, that might be beyond our pay grade to even ask such a question. Sure. But I, I'm I happy to for, comment on it. Um, yeah. I'm happy to comment on those things. So on the one, yeah, I, I um, appreciate what you said there about our own story. I think what I would emphasize um, with our own story is, is this, well, you highlighted that Jesus and Matthew, especially bring this out. He kind of mm-hmm. rehearses uh, the story of Israel, like you said, Egypt, going out of Egypt, going through the waters and so forth, uh, giving his um, uh, law on a mountain, the Sermon on the Mountain, so mm-hmm, forth, mm-hmm. calling 12 apostles, um, his uh, new covenant people corresponding mm-hmm. with the 12 tribes and so forth. Um, so, um, And then with his resurrection from the dead, conquering sin and death and so forth. What I would say is that for those who have um, trusted in Christ, that John 5, this idea, they've already moved from death to life. So there's uh, a finality. There's um, a solidarity with Christ um, that is already that has already taken place. Um, but I uh, also appreciate your point that there is a sense in which we continue to kind of be in this wilderness and desert and so forth. It's a time, what I would say in, from my tradition, um, of sanctification where Christians grow in their relationship with the Lord. Revelation 12, I think, refers to this time as a time of testing and being in the desert and so forth. Um, it's a time when God is at work. One of the things that I think is really, really encouraging um, is something we read in Philippians 1.6, that Christians are not on their own. It's not, mm-hmm. just, it's not just up to them, that God is faithful um, to complete the work that he started. So what I would say, yes, it's a time of kind of testing and so forth, the time being in the desert. But God, again, is always faithful to complete uh, what he started, and God is at work to bring uh, this work of salvation to completion. Um, you know, the uh, the comment on kind of Genesis 1 and 3, you know, there, of course, there are different views on that sort of thing. And um, it seems like there's certainly um, a literary structure when you kind of look at day one corresponding with day four, day two with day five, day three with day six and so forth, and then God resting on the seventh day uh, and these sorts of things. And um, so there's certainly a literary structure. 
Um, for me and in my own tradition and so forth, um, it's, uh, it's very important to recognize uh, a few things. Um, first of all, because there's literary structure doesn't mean that it's not true or that it's myth or that sort of thing. Um, but what I, one of the things that I think is really, really important is the historicity uh, of Adam, the historicity of Adam and Eve, um, that uh, death came through a man. And you see that and again in Romans 5, 12 through 21 and 1 Corinthians 15. And this means that salvation comes through a man, that salvation comes through the second Adam. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 21, death came through a man, so the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. So um, I would want to hold on to some really, really important pieces of the puzzle of the um, uh, Adam and Eve being real people, um, uh, the fall being real, and then Jesus being a real person, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, all indispensable uh, for salvation. You know, you kind of look at um, uh, genealogies, you know, you don't have fake people or myths and genealogies and in all in the genealogies of the Bible, whether it be Genesis five or, um, or first Chronicles or Luke three, um, you have the genealogy going back to Adam. So I would just, uh, I would want to emphasize those sorts of things. Um, and at least in how I understand the scripture and how my own tradition does. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, that's a very fair point. And Adam, though we think it is a proper noun and a man's name, it means man, right? It means right. something like it, it's the same word as um, right. like taken from the earth kind of kind of man. So um, how they, is that not right? That Adam and Adama is man. Right. And That's earth, correct. Yeah, yes. Or soil or. Yeah. yeah. So there is something in it that like, um, he, there's something in it that he is a person, but he's also every person, at least in my own life when I make my own sin but that doesn't mean that there wasn't such a person who lived in such a right time yeah. there is also something about um the journey the walking um like you made a really interesting point that it's a temple garden it's got a little bit of order and a little bit of wilderness and you're never alone um as paul wrote to the philippians like you're yep. never you're never alone and, and jesus says i'm i'm going you know back now but i'm sending you um a, a helper so we can manage a wilderness mm-hmm. Right. Because you don't want to be in the jungle by yourself, which is full of mud and mosquitoes and poisonous snakes. But on the other hand, you don't want to be sitting in a parking lot because there's not much there. A garden is the perfect place because you can there's a little bit of wilderness and a little bit of order. And if you're getting in over your head, you just lean on you just lean on God and uh Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I appreciate that, and certainly um, uh, there are many, so many glorious promises uh, throughout Scripture in both the Old Testament and the New Testament of God uh, being with His people. And appreciate you highlighting there Jesus' promises in the Gospel of John. He's not going to leave us alone. Um, He's going to send a Helper. uh, John sixteen thirty three. In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart; I've overcome the world. And again, the Philippians one six. God is faithful to complete. Uh, what he started, Romans 8, 31 through 39, nothing can separate God's people from um, uh, from the love of God in, in, in Christ Jesus. So yeah, all these wonderful promises that, uh, that we're not living the Christian life alone. God is always faithful. He's always with us. He promises he'll never leave us. And he even gives us a, uh, gives a spirit to indwell his people. Yeah. Um, another interesting um, and I think very important point you make is... Uh, uh, Paul to the Corinthians uh, one fifteen, um, you 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 remind us that Jesus is the first fruits that he's leading the way for his people. It's not just 
reserved for the Son of God, but it's also um, it's also for us. And this this reminded me of uh, a, a point that uh, C.S. Lewis makes that I think you you refer to as well that the right. New Testament writers speak. Um, Lewis writes the New Testament writers speak of as if Christ's achieving achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He's the first fruits. He's the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in the cosmic history has opened. And for Catholics, um, there's a little, there's a sort of a, a rosary um prayer guide that the that the pope wrote and in and when we pray about the ascension of jesus uh, pope francis writes well this is like a roped guide like you're climbing a difficult mountain but you're not you don't have to figure out the path you just follow this expert guide as an, you're, you're tied to him on a rope so you're safe you're still making the climb but you're following his lead um, do you want to talk about uh, C.S. Lewis or or this image or what you mean by first fruits or what St. Paul means? By- yeah, sure. That's that's great. I appreciate that. So yeah, I love that uh, that quote from from C.S. Lewis, Miracle, the one you gave. I don't have it completely right in front of me, but you gave it to us. But this pioneer, the risen Christ, uh, going before us, he's broken through uh, something which which no one else has. And you know, this is really important because you do find uh, people that are raised from the dead. In the Bible, you have people that are raised from the dead in the Old Testament and in the New Testament uh, before Jesus. But what happens to them after they're raised uh, from the dead? Well, they die again. Okay, so this wasn't a final glorified uh, bodily resurrection. They were raised from the dead, but then only uh, only to die again. But with Jesus, you find something different. He is raised from the dead, never to die again. Um, glorified uh, bodily final resurrection. And uh, this is the reason that Paul referred to Jesus' resurrection from the dead as the first fruits, the first fruit of a greater harvest uh, to come. That's kind of the image there that we find in 1 Corinthians 15. And what you find, you know, when you look at the New Testament, there are some surprising things. You had from the Old Testament the promise of what we might call a last day's kingdom, the kingdom of God that was to come. And it's surprising because this kingdom of God is split um, into two comings of the Messiah. The kingdom doesn't come just with one coming of Jesus, with one coming of the Messiah, but with his first coming, which we just celebrated here Mm -hmm. uh, with Christmas. Mm -hmm. But then also we look forward to a second coming when this kingdom will be consummated. You have the new covenant, which similarly unfolds with the first coming of Jesus, the Messiah, and the second coming. And then you have, you know, kind of corresponding with this, uh, the age of resurrection um, also um, being split in two. And you have this resurrection of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, that happens in the middle of history, um, Mm -hmm. meaning that this new creation, um, this kingdom of God has been uh, inaugurated. And this, of course, the great uh, the harvest that is to come, that's the first fruits. The harvest that's to come will be those who are united to Christ by faith in the future with the resurrection of the people of the Messiah in the future. Do you have um, in the what we call the Apostles' Creed, do you have do you have that? Um, I believe in God, the Father, Almighty. Yeah. 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 OK, so in that one, like it says he he suffered, died. He descended on. The, he descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again. Do you have a 
sense of what what this is, this harrowing of hell is going into the land of the dead and how that worked. Is that, uh, is yeah, that, is that well, I mean, I don't think that's biblical, right? I think that's transmitted through the, through the, I mean, and of course the, the, the Catholic church until 1535 was also the reformed church. It's just that 1535, they parted company. Yeah. I think if I were going to, to defend that and, um, generally people in my tradition, um, when they defend something like that, when they talk about that in, in the Apostles' Creed and, and so forth, it's something along these lines that Jesus experienced um, the, uh, the, the fullness of death. Um, he died. He takes upon um, himself the wrath uh, uh, of the Father, this, um, this, uh, the sin of his people. Um, there's a sense in which we could say when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm-hmm. Um, when he is separated from the Father. Of course, I don't think this is an ultimate and final separation because even in that same psalm, in Psalm 22, you have um, the psalmist being vindicated and Jesus vindicated in his resurrection. So I think I would say something like that of um, Jesus uh, experiencing um, um, all that it means to experience death in mm-hmm. the sense of, of separation from God, um, experiencing death on behalf of his people, something like that. Yeah, and and um, he's quoting Psalm twenty two, as you say. So he's this is would you say an expression of his anguish and and very true suffering, rather than you know the the actual separation of God, which I think is impossible. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think certainly um, an aspect of his anguish, um, an aspect of um, of taking. Uh, the sin of his people uh, on himself um, at that moment, you know, Jesus knowing what's to come um, even says, look, if there's, if this can pass, if there can be some, any sort of what, any other way, let this cup pass from me, but not mm-hmm. my will be done. Your will be done and mm-hmm. so forth. So um, I think we need to just pres- uh, preserve those sorts of things. And um, if I were going to comment, try to connect, you know, something in the new Testament, um, to Jesus experiencing hell would be something along those lines. Jesus taking uh, the sin and punishment of his people on himself. Yeah, yeah. right. Okay. Um, now, uh, one, I loved your observation. I'm asking you a silly question now. I loved your observation about Obi-Wan Kenobi <laughs> uh, um, on page nine. Um, yeah. Would you like to say something about uh, old Ben Kenobi and say something about those who, <laughs> who uh, give their lives you know, those who give their lives and therefore thereby save them. Yeah, let me, I'll mention yeah. this. Uh, N.T. Wright um, has a couple of books on the resurrection. And, um, uh-huh. and uh, you know, he says this in, in both of those books, I think. He says that death is the last weapon of the tyrant. Okay. So if you have the tyrant, someone who wants to torture, terrorize people, death is the ultimate weapon, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if there is resurrection of the dead then the last weapon of the tyrant has been destroyed. It's neutralized, okay? And this is one of the things I think you find uh, in Scripture in the Bible. And, I, you know, that just kind of reminded me of this quote from Star Wars. Of course, I like Star Wars. My family likes Star Wars. My kids do and that sort of thing. Um, when, uh, when Obi-Wan Kenobi says um, to Darth Vader, um, you know, if, if you kill me, I'll only become stronger, that sort of thing. Now, of course, the irony uh, of this is... That uh, is that Obi Wan Kenobi has some sort of kind of immaterial 
um, existence in mind after death. And that's certainly not biblical whatsoever. And I point that out in my book. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that the, the, uh, the fu- for Christians, there will be a final glorified bodily resurrection, bodily material existence. But the illustration does point out this, that Christians have a hope that is greater than death. And I think if we pointed, you know, kind of connected this to um, some places in Scripture, you know, number one, I appreciate what you said about um, Christians who give the, themselves in service. You have Mark 8, 34 through 38. Um, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What does mm-hmm. it profit if a, um, a man, if he, get, if he gains the whole world, forfeits his soul, this idea of losing our lives um, to gain and so forth? Um, you have Revelation 7, 14 through 17. I won't read that now, but uh, Revelation 12, 11 uh, talks about this, that um, these believers triumphed over um, uh, death. They triumph over um, uh, Satan, the dragon, by the blood of the lamb, that is Jesus's death, and by the word of their testimony. They didn't love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So, how do Christians ultimately triumph? They mm-hmm. triumph through the work of Jesus, and they triumph and win even when they die. When Christians are faithful to Christ, even to the point of death, what happens when a Christian dies? They go to be with, in, in my view and what I believe the Bible teaches, they go to be with the Lord. And when Jesus returns, there is glorified bodily resurrection. So it's just, it's just this hope that, which is so important for Christians that death does not have the final word. It doesn't have the final say. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, I always, when I try, when I talk to my own kids, I try to say like, you know how when you're playing uh, Dungeons and Dragons and guess what? A rock fell on you and you're dead. Well, you're not dead. It's your little elf running through that mine trying to steal the treasure from the dragon. That's the person who's dead. You're still sitting at the table and you, it's, uh, um, there's nothing to be feared in, in ending this, this, part of our life, which is, as C.S. Lewis likes to say, it's just the first page of the first chapter. Yeah. Uh, and there is so much, I mean, we have no idea what it's going to look like, but man, it, it's... Uh, yeah, only glimpses. We got glimpses. Yeah. We know it's going to be amazing. Like, you, yes, that's right. Right, right. Like he says, like a, a, a postcard from a country you've never visited or right. that sort of thing. Um, we, we, why do we cling so much to our lives, given the fact that unless you're Enoch... <laughs> Like a hundred percent of us, none of us are getting out of this alive, right? If, if I die tomorrow or at the age of 95 or at the age of 120, uh, I really, I really hold on to this. Um, what is that just because I can't see or what, what's that about? Is that a, is that a, is it because life is so good that God created this world where even though there's much suffering and much disappointment, there's also a lot of good and a lot of love or, um, what is it about the humans that makes us yeah. so attached. That's a good. That's a good question. So, clean to this life, um, you know. I think there are probably good aspects and, and bad aspects to it. You know, on, on the one hand, um, uh, you know, we could say this: God creating us for life. We we recognize, mm-hmm. on the one hand, that um, death is is not. Um, uh, it wasn't part uh, of God's. Uh, original plan in the sense of Genesis 1 and 2, in the sense of God holding out um, eternal life for his people. Um, And uh, I would just say that there's a sense in which that that is good, that we recognize that, of course, no one, I I don't want to die. We don't want to experience death. 
um, because God creates us for life. And so there's something, I think, in our consciences that kind of bears wit- uh, bears witness to that, that God has written that on our hearts in some sort of way and so forth. And it kind of bears witness to what we see in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, on the other hand, you know, there are some kind of bad motivations where we're looking for this life uh, to be kind of our ultimate source of, of satisfaction in life and purpose and that sort of thing and to have everything just the way we want in this life. And then and that's not consistent with uh, what the Bible teaches, not consistent with what Jesus promises his people. He says in this life, you will have trouble, you will have tribulation and so forth. And uh, when we look for kind of what only uh, can be fulfilled in eternal life in kind of a new creation, when we look for that to try to um, uh, happen in this life, then it's surely just going to kind of bring us disappointment. And kind of I think what you're alluding to is this idea of we should be willing um, uh, to be living sacrifices, to give our lives in service to the Lord, to King Jesus, um, even to the point of death. And, um, and this is what Jesus called his first disciples to. It's what he calls um, us to uh, as well, just to be, to be willing to do that, to be willing to take up our crosses, deny ourselves, and follow him. And so I think there are probably good aspects and bad aspects of this notion of people kind of clinging to life. Yeah. No, and of course, that would paradoxically be the most liberating thing you can do, which is... Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. Give it back. Okay. Uh, you have answered every question um, on... I, I could think of a bunch of others that I sort of came up on the fly. Is there other things we should talk about? No, I, I really uh, appreciate your questions. And uh, yeah, I thought this was great. All right. Uh, so, uh, Jeff, would you like to close uh, with a blessing for our listeners and their families and our world? Yeah. So what I'm going to do is just read um, one of my favorite blessings in Scripture. It's from Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. And uh, this is a great, I think, kind of blessing because um, it does highlight uh, Jesus' resurrection from the dead and kind of fits with some of the things that we've talked about uh, today. So Hebrews 13, 20 through 21, Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross. Be born for me. Chris Odinitz and Jeff Brennan recorded this conversation on January 5th, 2022, which was the 12th day of Christmas, or 12th night, the eve of the Epiphany. And many children get presents in places like England, which I think is a lovely custom, in honor of the Magi or Three Kings. This day was also the funeral of Pope Benedict XVI, later Pope Emeritus. Pope Francis presided over the funeral, and then Pope Benedict was laid in a tomb previously occupied by his dear friend and longtime collaborator, John Paul II, who had been moved from the tomb to the altar of St. Jerome in 2001, and then the altar of St. Sebastian in 2005, both in St. Peter's Basilica, after he had been declared blessed. He was later canonized St. John Paul the Great in 2014. Now, Pope Benedict's body lays in that first tomb, which is less than 100 feet from the tomb of St. Peter. Our music is from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band, www.gscoasterband.com. Our logo, the stained glass window in Santo Domingo de Silos in Spain, comes from the Dominican friars of England, Scotland, and Wales. 
www.english.op.org. I'm Chris Odinitz. I'd love to know what you are thinking, and I invite you to email me at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. I thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guarded.